My last two years in college, I lived in a house with, uh, I think, nine or ten other people. And those two years, the house was equally divided uh, between men and women. And so that sets the context for this story I'm about to tell you. It was, I believe, my senior week, which is to say all the work was done. We had graduation coming up. Our parents were a few days away from arriving. And one of my friends in the house, a young woman about my age, had been talking for a couple weeks about how she had a crush on this one particular young man. And as it happened at the party the night before, they, uh, shall we say, got together. And he spent the night with her at our place. And in this large house, there were two ways to enter and exit the house. One, front door, obviously, facing the street. The other, uh, rear door. And this young guy, perhaps feeling a little bit self-conscious, said, I'm going to exit out the back door. Maybe no one will, will notice. And she said, dude, by avoiding this, you're just going to make it worse on yourself. Because what he forgot is there were these large bay windows where all the other 10 plus people in the house were sitting. And we saw this guy. (laughs) And one of my friends yelled out, look who's surreptitiously sneaking out back with his walk of shame. (laughs) And he looked at us. (laughs) Now, the truth was, walk of shame was a joke. There was no shame whatsoever. And I only know this whole story because my friend who lived in the house, who I will not name for you, I will not give you her first name. Uh, She's still a friend of mine. She's an accomplished professional. Um, She just, when she could hear us all making the noises, she's like, man, I told you. I told you. Just claim it. Now, I offer this story because in contrast to four years earlier, something that wasn't funny at all happened. A young woman who I was interested in and who ended up dating for about a month or so, my first year in college, I shared this news with a bunch of other young men, a bunch of other 18-year-olds. And the feedback I got was this. She's a punch board. It's, I'm not going to explain it for you, but I think you can get what it's about. It's a particularly vile, misogynistic term to refer to a young woman who's sexually active. Here's the thing, though. There's no equivalent that I know of for a male punch board. It was a double standard. I mean, you've all heard that phrase before, walk of shame. I just used it, and I think probably you heard it before then. With our friends at our school... Walk of shame had no shame attached to it whatsoever. It was just a way of teasing each other a little bit and recognizing what was going on in our lives. But the distance between that first-year experience, a vile misogynistic term to refer to a young woman who was sexually active, and that final-year experience, what went on in those four years for me was an awful lot of awareness-raising. An awful lot of difficult conversations. So I went to an all-male boarding school, and even though I was somewhat progressive, it was awash in sexism 
and homophobia and all kinds of double standards about the difference between female sexuality and male sexuality. So in those four years of college, through many difficult conversations around race and class and gender and about the different ways that we treat different people that are decidedly unfair and sometimes downright cruel, I think this is, by, by the way, the only way that we can really have honest, joking conversations with each other around stuff like sex. That's sometimes difficult. It's only if we've done the work beforehand of really understanding where we're coming from and all the kind of loaded language we bring to the fact that we're sexual beings. So I bring all that to you this morning in light of this person. That's Amy Schumer. She is the writer and the star of today's movie, Trainwreck. One of the things I liked about this movie very much is that she is very sexually active. And there is absolutely no shame about her being sexually active. Now, this movie is directed by a guy named Judd Apatow who has directed a whole bunch of movies exactly like this. And for me, the only difference in this movie was instead of having a young, immature man come to grow in realization that he's got to overcome old wounds so he can actually be in relationship in an authentic way with another person, is that here Amy Schumer is in that role, and it's her story rather than a guy's story. The truth is, is that if you've ever seen any of Amy Schumer's show on Comedy Central, it is really sharp. It really tackles issues of gender and double standards and sexuality. And the truth is, I actually felt her talents were wasted in this movie because it ends up being just kind of a traditional romantic comedy, a rom-com, as it's called. There is a vision here, however, in this movie that I did like. Even without what's sometimes called slut-shaming, shaming women who are sexually active, There's still an understanding in this movie that Amy has some growing up to do if she is going to be a mature person. The forms of feminism that I learned in college began with this sense of not shaming women for being sexually active. That behaviors for men we just kind of allowed were deemed suspect by women, starting to question that. But my education as a young man in the kinds of feminism that I ultimately not just understood but took to heart was this. It was from a professor my first year at Yale Divinity School, a sister of mercy Roman Catholic nun named Margaret Farley. By the prior pope, by the way, she was singled out as one of the people who was too radical for the church. She defined feminism. She's doing a little bit better under this current pope, a little bit. She defined feminism as this way, a commitment to the flourishing of all beings with particular attention to the actual experiences of women. A commitment to the flourishing of all beings with a particular attention to the experience of women. I remember this definition about Four months ago, when I was at a documentary called The Mask You Live In. I'm not sure anyone else in here has seen the movie. You may have heard of it. I've talked about it before. 
It's about all the ways in which young men, and I understand this from the inside, having once been a young man, are socialized into shutting down our hearts, into socialized into saying things like, oh, that girl's a punch board because we think it's going to elicit a rise or laughter out of the other young men we're with. And this obviously causes damage to women, and it also causes damage to ourselves as men. In the conversation after we watch the documentary of The Mask You Live In, I mean, you hear that title, Mask You Live In, Masculine. Ah. <laughs> One of the people present for that conversation was the head of the UPenn Women's Center, a committed feminist. One of the things that she talked about is that some emails had become public from within the fraternity system of UPenn. And in it was revealed really kind of vile, disgusting stuff about young men wanting to be sexually active with young women. And she said, this stuff makes me sick. But she also said something else. And this I thought was very, very powerful as well, especially in the context of the movie we just watched. She said, I feel empathy for those young guys. I do not approve what they did. I cannot approve their actions or their words. But I feel empathy for them, for how lost and lonely and how much they want to belong to and with each other that they're willing to engage in such unhealthy, destructive behaviors. About 18 months ago, Lee and I had a message series called The Power of With, which is about different ways of understanding cooperation, co-creativity, really being with one another. And Lee quoted a professor, Elizabeth Schussler-Fiorenza. I was hoping I could get that full name out. I've tripped over Schussler-Fiorenza many times. She's been teaching for a long time. She talked about different forms of power Lee recounted with us. There's power against my will versus yours. There's power over. I dominate you to get what I want. Then the esteemed professor also talked about power with. Cooperative power. The kind of power that is about real freedom. The kind of power that does not seek a victory at the expense of someone else. For those of you who are here past week, last week and saw the child dedication, maybe the words pass by you in the midst of that beautiful ritual. But one of the pieces of the final blessing that we give to every child here at Wellsprings is this. May you win no victory that harms yourself or another. That is about the power of with. The power of with, true freedom, real relationship, non-exploitative, mutual. It is the kind of power so many of us are wrestling with in this culture right now. And I found that it particularly showed up for me this week and perhaps for many of you as well too. With these two stories, these two deaths. On the one hand, as perhaps many of you know, there's Cecil the lion, 
who was enticed, I guess you could say, legally killed by a dentist in Minnesota on safari, I believe, in Nigeria. Cecil, who had been beloved by millions and killed for absolutely, as I understand it, no good reason whatsoever. I mean, I did a lot of fishing when I was young. I either threw back what I caught or I ate what I caught. I eat animals less than I used to. But the piece of this story that I just don't get, and I know many of you don't get, is why kill something just to kill something? This, as many of you know, is Samuel Dubose, a black man who was killed by a University of Cincinnati police officer. As it appears, solely because that police officer was fearful and literally blew off Samuel DeBose's face when Samuel DeBose was doing nothing at all threatening. As a person with white skin, as a person who's trying to pay attention, this is, we know, one of many, many stories that many of us are trying to listen to now under the umbrella of Black Lives Matter and understanding all the ways in which, sadly, black lives do not matter as much as white lives in this culture. The connection between these two stories is that I heard a number of my African-American friends and people on Facebook wondering aloud and pointedly, why are so many people upset over Cecil's death and yet the killing of people like Samuel DeBose still goes on. This is a question I've heard over and over again, pointedly. White folks, you care an awful lot about the animals. But what about other people, people different from you? And I also heard another response back to this, which I do believe this is all about compassion. At the deepest level, it's all about recognizing how power over, power against, destroys lives in so many forms. And if it is our intention to cultivate compassion for all forms of suffering, then we don't have to treat. We can treat it differently, and I'm going to put my cards around the table. I'm sad over the killing of Cecil. It makes me angry. I am outraged over the killing of Samuel DuBose. For me, there is a hierarchy, and human life is more important than, anim than animal life. And still, the connection between these two, these two killings, is that we can recognize they both violate our universalism. Our universalism that says we come from the same source, we have the same destination. And it's not just about recognizing what was and not recognizing about getting some place in the future. Is that these basic facts of our existence should change our existence, our lives right now. And encourage us to live much greater with the power of with. More cooperative, more fair, more kind. See, between Cecil and between Samuel DuBose in Cincinnati, here's the work to connect the dots of compassion. 
to see the underlying value that life is precious. And that when we act in such ways out of our fear, out of our ego, of thinking we're in it for ourselves alone, it is a personal, an ethical, a spiritual, and yes, even a cosmic violation of our universalism. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, says literally, I know some of you know this already, literally, we are made all of the same stardust. In this tradition, the challenge, and sad to say there'll be something else coming up this week, another unfair death, another act of fear, bigotry, hatred, violence, The challenge with our tradition and also the opportunity is to ask ourselves, how are we individually and also collectively, how are we experiencing a wider width of width? A wider width of width that says it's not just about ourselves or people who look like us or people in our religion or people in our country. How are we experiencing a wider width? Of with. This is the core of the ethics of universalism. How do we know power with? It is, by the way, going back to Trainwreck, which, as you might be clear for now, because I've hardly talked about the movie whatsoever, I didn't really like all that much. <laughs> it wasn't bad, it just wasn't all that good. And like I said, if you're an Amy Schumer fan, go watch your show, it's much better. But it was for me the most emotionally compelling piece of this movie. Amy's kind of loneliness, if you will, is related to her relationship with her dad, who was a philanderer philanderer, and a drunk and someone who did not understand the power of with in his life. And as we meet him later on in the movie, he is in a nursing home. And he's turned so many other people away because he's been so difficult to live with. He has MS. And in one very compelling scene, we see that he cannot even zipper the jacket he's wearing any longer. And Amy reaches over to help him. It's a small act of the power of with. In many ways, the movie is about her overcoming her dad's influence to recognize that there are more wonderful ways to be in relationship other than just ourselves alone. Amy grew up in a household in the movie in which the words of Tara Brock, the wonderful meditation teacher, ring very true to me. She says, Tara Brock does, that for so many of us in our lives, especially if we are separated from each other by shame or by racism, by classism, sexism. She says we have to learn how to overcome what many of us consider to be the unreal other. Samuel DeBose was an unreal other to the police officer who shot him. Cecil Lyon was an unreal other to the person who took his life for sport. I think we all have versions of unreal others. 
people who we have a difficult time seeing, or whole groups of people, seeing the reality of their lives. This is challenging stuff, I know. I wrestle with it all the time, and I fail at it all the time. I have all kinds of unreal others. But I also do recognize that there's a cost to me in that, in my own sense of separation, in my own sense of isolation. And so I want to share a story with you in which an other became real for me. It comes out of this. A couple weeks ago, I told you about being in a Whole Foods and how the image of the constantly smiling, happy people who have it all together on the cover of mindful magazines and yoga magazines. By the way, I love both these practices. These things are the heart of my spiritual life. Not helping, (laughs) right? Because I don't have it all together. And the whole point of these practices in the first place is that they help us deal with a life in which things are often difficult, in which there's immense suffering. What I didn't tell you is that there's a part two to this story, which is that while I was shopping earlier, before I got to the checkout line and saw all these blissful folks, I heard a cry go up in the other part of the story. It's a large story. It's the woman Plymouth meeting. I heard a cry go up from to say distressed child would have been taking it down 75 (laughs) percent. And it went on. And on, and it intensified, and it got louder and louder. And we're talking like 10, 15 minutes. This was an unseen child. And perhaps I was attuned to this, because not too long ago before this experience, there was a social media story that actually some of you, I think, posted about. That was about a particularly irate adult in a restaurant going over to the parents of a young child who was squalling and obviously having a difficult time and basically telling them off. And then actually thought some people thought this was an act of bravery. (laughs) And so maybe I was a little attuned to the suffering of this particular small life because I really started to notice how annoyed I was. I mean, like, you know, if we have any basic empathy whatsoever, we're hardwired to listen to the cries of children. And some of us are a little hard, more hardwired than others to say, oh, my God, please shut up. <laughs> and I could feel this annoyance. But then I recognized this didn't have to be the end of the story for me. The first thing I did is I recognized how tense my shoulders were becoming. And I recognized how tight my thoughts were becoming about when is this child going to stop? But then I looked deeper. And I took a breath. And I asked myself a question. If I think this is annoying, imagine what it possibly is like for that child's parents. As I started to recognize my own frustration, I mean, yeah, I'm 45, but I was four once, and I'm not all that different then than I was now. (laughs) Or now than I was then, but you get the point. I know what frustration feels like. I know what it's like to want something I can't have. I know what it's like to not be listened to. 
to be an unreal other. I know what it's like to be stressed. And something totally changed. I found myself setting out, sending out loving kindness, <laughs> meta, to this child and this family. And again, I never saw them. They, I think, had left the store before I was ready to check out. This was my final wish for them. Is that not the other people around them were giving them the... What are you going to do about that? But that they were smiling at them. Saying, you are not an unreal other to me. I see your distress. When we practice in this way in our lives, we are expanding with the wider width of width. We are honoring what the great Buddhist nun Pema Chodron says when she wrote, we don't set out to change the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. This is the wider width of width. This is curiosity, not just in an ethical way, but this is curiosity as an ethical commitment to expand our own hearts when our hearts want to close down. I would say in a world in which so many of us are hurting, in which the story of Cecil, or again even more Samuel DeBose, rests on our hearts and breaks our hearts, in which so many of our systems seem to be stuck in cruelty and in indifference, and in making unreal others, that this kind of curiosity is exactly what we need. Because simply focusing on how stuck we feel and of how we're battling power over or power against or we feel that people are trying to have power over or against for us, we need the power of with. We need to pay attention to those people who are living in this way, who are not just doing it individually, but actually changing systems as a result. We need better heroes of the power of with. People like this person, Dr. Nika Jones-Tapia. Some of you may have seen this when I posted this on Facebook. She is the first ever psychologist who is the warden of a prison. Cook County Jail, Chicago. Lots of violence. Not a lot of resources to treat mentally ill people. And mentally ill people wind up getting warehoused in jails, not getting the treatment, the care that they need. Dr. Nika Jones-Tapia is changing that. Now every single inmate who comes into Cook County Jail gets a mental health evaluation, gets care, gets medicine if they need it. Because she's also from within the correction system itself, she also has the understanding of the correction officers whose lives are not easy, whose jobs are stressful. She is living with the wider width of width. When we're stuck in unhealthy systems, we will become unhealthy ourselves. We will start living, even if we don't want to, with power over, power against. She is just one example of what it's like to engage the ethical imagination. 
and to expand our hearts. There's a Sufi saying that I love. It says this, if you want to smell sweet, stay close to the seller of perfumes. If you want to smell sweet, stay close to the seller of perfumes. We need better stories and we need better heroes if we want to really know what our freedom is for. In the end, I do believe that in spite of all the differences and all the different expressions of our lives, there is one great suffering, there is one great compassion, and there is one great healing. May we all be able to participate in all the ways that we can in the healing. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Divine of the most expansive hearts imaginable, beyond imagining. May we recognize the ways in which our hearts grow small because of our fear, because of our limitations, because of the ways that we may refuse to see the others, or perhaps because of the ways that our lives have been refused by others. May we see this path of the limited love and choose not to go down it, but instead continue to open, continue to deepen, continue to expand the wider width of width. Today, may we do this. May we grow the heart and recognize in others everyone else who's doing the same work as life takes on the shape of belovedness. Amen.